Welcome to Evergreen History. I'm Jackie. And I'm Gavin. In this series, we'll be featuring a wide array of topics regarding Washington State's history and folklore, from devastating shipwrecks to centuries of myths conjured from dark forests. The vast geography of Washington ranges from hot desert plateaus to rugged, snowy mountains. Humans have inhabited this captivating land for at least 13,000 years. Accordingly, the stories are bountiful. Be sure to tune in frequently to learn more about Evergreen history. Today we'll be talking about Western State Hospital, the second longest state-run institution after the University of Washington. We'll be discussing its origins, history of treatments, and snippets of the lives of some of the people who have been admitted to Western State throughout the years. Please note, some of the vocabulary we use is quoted from newspapers dating to the late 1800s and may not be the preferred terms used today. Western State Hospital is a psychiatric hospital located south of Tacoma in Lakewood. It has been in operation since 1871. Even though it is one of the largest facilities of its kind and has over 800 beds, it has come under scrutiny in recent years for a plethora of reasons. There has been staff shortages, patient escapes, and workplace discrimination lawsuits including sexual harassment. According to DSHS, or the Department of Social and Health Services, as of September 1, 2017, the hospital is still working on an agreement made in June 2016 to fix systemic operating problems at the hospital and restore the focus on patient treatment and overall safety. In 1871, the Insane Asylum of Washington Territory was opened. Washington, which was still a territory at this time, purchased the garrison buildings of the former Fort Stillicum for $850 from the U.S. government. The buildings were converted for the care and custody of insane and idiotic persons. Additionally, in 1874, Congress donated approximately 373 acres of Fort Stillicum to be an asylum for the insane and for no other purpose. The first patients were 15 men and 6 women who were transferred from Monticello. The building had separate halls for men and women, and windows were secured with iron bars. From the beginning, there was trouble at the facility which locally was referred to simply as the Insane Asylum. While a physician was in charge of patient care, a contractor managed finances, maintenances, and the like. Under the system, patient care did not fare well. The first physician, Dr. Stacy Hemingway, was succeeded by Dr. H.C. Willison, and Dr. H.C. Willison then resigned in 1875, citing deplorable conditions which were out of his control to change. Dr. Ballard, a former assistant physician of the Oregon Insane Asylum, then assumed the role. An example of an occurrence that should have been prevented was reported by the Daily Argus, a publication out of Port Townsend, on April 3, 1875. J.W. Mitchell of Thurston County, a patient in the Insane Asylum, while the doctor was absent a few moments, snatched a bottle of chloral hydrate, took an overdose, and died. He had relatives in Oregon and was aged 40. In the same year, the Medical Society of Washington Territory conducted investigations of the management of the asylum on charges of maltreatment of patients. In 1875, legislature created a board of trustees to monitor the hospital. Minor improvements in care were made, and there were more activities for patients. Dr. Sparling served as the physician in the intermediate time between 1875 and 1877. During the year of 1877, 93 patients were admitted to the asylum, of whom 15 were married and 78 single, 
and of whom 38 were American-born, 49 foreign-born, and 6 were unknown. Dr. Rufus Willard took over in 1877. Dr. Willard reported that the resident physician was now in charge of all operations of the facility and more improvements were made. Over 300 fruit trees were planted, along with acres of gardens. Patients also worked and helped participate in planting the orchards. One patient, who probably helped as he had previous farming experience, was John Nail. He was a Seattle pioneer from Germany, whose original 161-acre plot of land is now part of the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle, including Cal Anderson Park. Like information regarding other patients at the time, it is unclear what the extent of his mental illness was. A doctor stated about Nail, in my judgment, a dangerous man and should be carefully guarded, and he was taken to the asylum in July of 1884. Even with some improvements in regards to patient care, there were apparently still problems with staff relations. Dr. Willard was discharged by the Board of Trustees simply because he would not nominate Major Alden for accountant. Willard had stated that Alden had properly kept accounts, but their personal relations were not of a friendly character. The next physician had a much longer tenure than the previous. Dr. John W. Wapp served from 1880 to 1897. By this time, patients were doing more jobs on site, including raising chickens and hogs, gardening, baking, carpentry, and blacksmithing. New barns were constructed. He and his wife planted a Chinese empress tree, which still blossoms purple in the spring. A nearby lake, formerly known as Mud Lake, was named after him following his death in 1903. Escapes from the facility have been pretty much part of Western States history since its inception, and the times during Dr. Waup's management were no exception. One story of an escaped patient was reported by the Puget Sound Mail, February 19, 1881. A man who supposedly escaped from the asylum went into a saloon at Olympia. He stood by the fire a few moments, then, turning to a stranger, asked to borrow his knife. Supposing the fellow wanted to cut some tobacco, the man handed him the knife. Opening it deliberately, the steel commenced stabbing himself in the neck. The blade was very blunt and dull, and did a very ugly job. After jabbing it twice into his throat, making ugly though not serious wounds, he handed the knife back to the owner, remarking that such an instrument would not kill a hog, and that he would go jump into the bay to finish the job. After a hard tussle, he was detained by an officer who happened to be nearby and was sent back to Stilcombe. That same year in September, a seedy-looking chap was arrested on the charge of vagrancy. Later, Dr. Wahop sent a telegram confirming he was an escaped patient. In 1886, a bill passed solidifying the hospital's permanence. A formal opening occurred in 1887, and attendance included Governor Eugene Semple, legislators, and civilians arriving from Olympia and Tacoma by boat. The hospital concert played at the affair. In 1888, a year before Washington became a state, the asylum was renamed to Western Washington Hospital for the Insane. By 1900, there were 694 patients. Additions were made and old buildings were replaced. The DSHS website details changes in care. Hydrotherapy was the early treatment of choice. Wet packs, hot tubs, and showers were used for nearly 50 years to create a calming effect for the patients. Insulin therapy was started in the mid-1930s. Disappointingly, after years of improvement, conditions at Western State declined. 
both in infrastructure and patient care. Forced sterilizations, lobotomies, and procedures like extreme electric shock therapy came into practice. These problems were not only confined to Western states. Similar practices, which are seen as unethical today, were present throughout the country. One procedure, sterilization, stemmed from the concept of eugenics. The eugenics movement pushed for selective breeding to get rid of traits seen as undesirable in the human race. Obvious to most people today, this is problematic for many reasons. For one, it was much a matter of opinion what a desirable or undesirable trait would be. Another issue with the movement was sterilization was often performed without the person's consent or knowledge. In 1909, Washington put into effect one of the first sterilization laws in the country. It states, Whenever any person shall be adjudged guilty of carnal abuse of a female person under the age of 10 years, or of rape, or shall be adjudged to be a habitual criminal, the court may, in addition to such other punishment or confinement as may be imposed, direct an operation to be performed upon such person for the prevention of procreation. Revised Code of Washington 992-100 was deemed constitutional by the Washington State Supreme Court in 1912 and is still technically a law today, although few were sterilized under the law. In 1913, the average population rose to 1,440. In 1915, in its final name change, it became known as Western State Hospital. By 1921, the acreage had increased to 670. A law that had looser definition of who would be sterilized was passed in 1921, and consequently, many sterilizations were performed until 1942, when it was finally struck down as unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. Western State was one of five state institutions legally allowed to perform the procedure, and 196 patients who were diagnosed as feeble-minded, insane, epileptic, habitual criminals, moral degenerates, and sexual perverts were sterilized there while the law was active. This included people who would not be seen as having a mental illness today, like people with different sexual orientations or promiscuous women. Shortly after this time, in 1944, Western State admitted one of the hospital's most famous patients, Francis Farmer. Francis Farmer is known to many as the subject of Nirvana's song, Francis Farmer Will Have Her Revenge on Seattle. Farmer was an actress born and raised in Seattle. As a youth, she had many talents, including debating and writing. She began study at the University of Washington in 1931, first as a journalism major, but then switching to drama. With ambition to become famous but without financial means, Farmer got a break by winning a trip to the Soviet Union after selling subscriptions of The Voice of Action, a leftist publication. Accused of communist support, she insisted she only wanted to study drama. Later, she explained, her real motive was to get to New York. And the next year, she had success both in Hollywood starring in several films, as well as acting on Broadway. Sadly, her life headed in the wrong direction. She had several tumultuous relationships, ending in divorce, and began to be dependent on alcohol and amphetamines, which were touted as an appetite suppressant at the time. In October 1942, she was arrested for drunken driving, driving without a license, and failure to obey dim-out restrictions in a wartime zone. She only paid half of her $250 fine at the time. Later, while filming on the set of No Escape, Farmer slapped a hairdresser so hard she fell and dislocated her jaw. Having a warrant out for not paying the other half of her fine, she was arrested again. 
For a good portion of the next seven years, she was institutionalized at various locations. In April of 1943, Farmer had returned to Seattle with her mother. However, the two fought extensively, and her mother filed a complaint that her daughter was insane. In March of 1944, Farmer was declared legally insane and sentenced to Western State. The two psychiatrists stated she was showing signs of agitation, delusion, and paranoia. The Seattle Times reported it was thought that marital difficulty might have been a predisposition to her insanity. Farmer underwent electric shock therapy, which was standard at the time, reportedly several times a week for three months. Today, electroconvulsive therapy is a procedure done under general anesthesia, in which small electric currents are passed through the brain, intentionally triggering a brief seizure. ECT seems to cause changes in brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental illnesses. However, in its early stages, it used higher levels of electricity and was not always done with anesthesia. This led to memory loss or other side effects. After the three months of treatment, Farmer's doctors at Western State proclaimed she had made a complete recovery and was released into her mother's care. One of the psychiatrists who diagnosed Farmer as insane advertised how her cure by ECT marks a significant victory for the mental hygiene movement in Washington State. However, less than one month later, she was arrested, this time on charges of vagrancy, and from 1945 to 1950, she was again institutionalized at Western State. After being released into her mother's care, her life was filled with more ups and downs. She passed away in 1970. The time farmer spent at Western State in the 1940s were markedly bad, and by the end of the decade, it had increased to 860 acres and had more and more patients. A report by the Seattle PI in 1949 documents understaffing, overcrowding, and unsafe conditions. Fourteen of the wards, which were housing hundreds of patients, had been built in the early 1900s and were deemed unsafe by fire officials. A three-story building built in that time period had already caught fire in 1947. It was believed to have started in a top-floor clothing closet, but the cause was unknown. The Seattle PI reported that two patients died while another publication reported that one patient burned to death. Two were injured and 230 were evacuated. Five patients also escaped. However, two were brought back the same day. The overcrowding was significant. The hospital was packed to 2,736, which was 510 patients over capacity. Patients were sleeping in unheated courts, which were initially intended for exercise areas. Because the limited staff were forced to work in 12-hour shifts, patients were put to bed for 12 hours at a time. As the bulk of the staff worked in the daytime, the smaller night staff couldn't handle the patients by themselves. However, there were some new buildings on site which were considered the best in the nation. Staff were also among those housed in decrepit conditions. A probable cause of the influx was that in the previous calendar year, there had been 1,010 new admissions, 50% of which came from Seattle. Of the conditions, Dr. Keller remarked, In our legislative program, people seem to be more interested in how cheaply they can take care of their mentally ill, rather than how well. Another procedure performed at Western State Hospital during this time was the transorbital lobotomy, Previous prefrontal lobotomies were performed surgically by drilling into the skull. This invasive surgery required surgeons, anesthesia, and operating rooms which most mental health hospitals didn't have the budget for. 
However, when the transorbital or ice pick lobotomy was developed, it required less training and could be performed with more frequency. However, when the transorbital or ice pick lobotomy was developed, it required less training and could be performed with more frequency. It involved inserting a sharp instrument under the upper eyelid, driving it about two inches through the roof of the eye socket and severing the nerve connections between the centers for imagination in the front part of the brain and the centers for emotions in the center of the brain. It could be completed in less than 10 minutes. Dr. Walter Freeman, a professor of neurology, visited Western State Hospital in either 1947 or 1948 to demonstrate and perform this new procedure on 13 patients. He came back for a second time in 1949 to perform the procedure on several more patients, as well as train more staff on the technique. A famous picture was taken by a Seattle PI photographer. The photo shows Dr. Freeman surrounded by nurses and doctors standing over a female patient who had been sedated first by shock therapy, about to drive the surgical instrument into the brain with a mallet. Supposedly, the patient pictured is Frances Farmer, although she herself denied so. The lobotomy purportedly was a cure for a wide range of conditions, including anxiety, suicidal depression, schizophrenia, insomnia, and delusions. While some patients did have their mental health conditions improved, the results were not consistent. Some came out of the procedure in a vegetable state or died. The procedure was also supposed to help with the hospitals being overcrowded. Freeman was quoted saying, Lobotomy gets them home, although no statistics were found on Western states specifically. In the U.S. between 1949 and 1952, about 50,000 people received lobotomies, and around 10,000 of those were transorbital lobotomies. Although extreme treatment like forced sterilization and lobotomies came and went, there have been a lot of problems at Western State Hospital in recent decades. It seems that most of the issues stem from understaffing, resulting in unsafe conditions and lack of timely care. In August 2012, Megan Templeton, who suffered from borderline personality disorder, committed suicide by hanging herself using bed sheets fixed to the closure of her door after being left unobserved and unrestrained at night. Staff performed CPR, but she passed two days later. Earlier in the day, she had to be restrained because she attempted to get past a nurse to grab a pair of scissors. The hospital had already noted the closures as hazardous in 2010, but they had not all been replaced. Suicide is one of the greatest risks to mental health patients, with hangings being one of the most common methods. At least a dozen patients had committed suicide between 2002 and 2012. New safe rooms with special door handles have been installed since 2012. Escapes are still a common problem. The Everett Herald reported that between 2013 and 2016 alone, 185 patients have escaped the grounds. Presently, there are two main types of patients in the hospital. Civilian patients are people who are seen as a threat to themselves or others after an evaluation by a mental health care professional. The wards for these patients are locked, but some patients have privileges to go off ward based on their progress. The goal for civil patients is not to house them for an extended period of time, but rather to stabilize their condition and return them to their families and communities. The other kinds of patients are forensic patients. These people have been committed by a court of law either to evaluate competency to stand trial or have been found not guilty by reason of insanity. 
This system is slated to change dramatically after changes in the Washington state budget in June 2017. Money has been designated to alter Western state to a forensic-only center. First, four 30 civilian bed wards will be converted to a forensic ward, and a fifth will be closed by 2021. Civilian or non-criminal patients will instead be housed at smaller facilities, hopefully closer to their communities. An example of a forensic patient is Cody Lee Miller. In 2016, Miller infamously spent over 24 hours in an 80-foot sequoia tree in downtown Seattle. Police attempted to talk to him, but he threw feces, cones, branches, and apples at them, some hitting pedestrians. The event disrupted traffic in the area and prompted much discussion on the internet. Eventually, he climbed down on his own and was taken by ambulance. His mother stated that he grew up with ADHD but didn't exhibit symptoms of schizophrenia until adulthood. Miller was in and out of jail, but his mother struggled to get him treatment. He was sent to Western State for 45-day evaluation and scheduled competency hearing. With all these happenings at Western State, we do need to acknowledge there are many people working at the facility who are doing the best they can in a high-stress environment and providing much-needed services. In a video released by a DSHS counselor, James Ortega explained, Unfortunately, the only time you see us on the news is when something goes wrong, but there are literally thousands of success stories throughout. Just my time here at the hospital, people that I have seen get better and never come back to the hospital. Today, treatments include psychotropic drugs, counseling, and behavior modification. Recent contracts with state employees see some nurses receiving 27.5% raises and other staff receiving raises as well. This is a critical change as staff shortages were seen as a major cause of failing to examine criminal patients timely and others being held in jail on waiting lists. On September 25, 2015, 14.8% of full-time positions were vacant. Western State Hospital has seen a lot of evolution since its inception. Today, four of the original 25 Fort Stillicum buildings still exist, three officer quarters and a chaplaincy. Two other buildings, which are now over 100 years old, are also intact, a bakery and a morgue. As this institution is still existing, there will probably be much more to come in its future. This has been an episode of Evergreen History. Thanks for listening, and make sure to tune in next time.